good morning. Thank you all so much for being here at this Saturday seminar on the thrilling topic of apologetics. Uh, very excited. If I haven't met you before, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the Minister of Theological Training here at Desert Springs. And so part of what that means, theological training, is doing stuff like this. Uh, I see my role as largely providing um, supplemental opportunities for we as a church and then even outside of our own church to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say supplemental, the primary way that any and every Christian learns, according to the scriptures, is the Sunday morning gathering. That, that should be a priority for all of us. That is where we uh, recognize this regular rhythm of coming and being taught from God's word. And then it's really from that that we go out and we engage in our own private devotions, that we are meditating on that word, we are reading our own Bibles. Um, but there is so much more to the Christian faith, there is so much more to study and to be learned than we could ever hope to cover in the... 45, 50 minutes, depends on who's preaching, right, uh, sermon on Sunday morning. And so I want to just always be creating opportunities for us to be learning in other topics and areas. And so these Saturday seminars are part of that. My plan is to have one of these seminars once a school semester, so once in the spring and once in the fall. So you can plan on that. And if you say, well, Chase, that's not enough. I, wanna, I have so much more to learn. Good. What we are also growing is our Desert Springs Institute, which is the classes that happen on Sunday morning. So you're already in some kind of rhythm of coming on Sunday morning. From my, my vision is from here on out, there will always be a class happening on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. So you can, just, you can just plan on that. You say, I don't even care what the class is. I'm just going to come to every class and grow in knowledge. Um, we are starting a class in spiritual disciplines tomorrow. If you haven't registered, just come. Okay, don't tell Tim that I told you that, but just come, and uh, that's 13 weeks in different spiritual disciplines, how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to fast, how to steward your resources and your time, things like that, um, and I've got a whole curriculum of other classes that will be coming through that pipe, and especially once we do our renovation and then we can open up more classroom spaces, I'm hoping to just keep on adding classes, so um, I would just encourage you, while I've got you captive, clearly you are learners um, maybe just rearrange your schedule and plan on Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. is my time to be equipped in a classroom setting, and then 10.45 is when I come to sing and to hear God's word preached, okay? So that's my little plug for the Desert Springs Institute, but today we are studying apologetics. So let me say a prayer, and then we'll jump in, and I'll kind of orient us a little bit. So let's pray. Lord, we honor you in our hearts as holy. And you've said that we should be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. So God, I pray that this time would prepare us to make a defense in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we are studying apologetics this morning. What is apologetics? We should probably define that word before we go any further. I think a lot of people get confused when they hear the word apologetics because we in English have a word to be apologetic which is to be sorry, is to be contrite, it's to be um, uh, to coming in sort of a lowly spirit and, and confessing that you did something wrong. Is that what we mean by Christian apologetics? Are we apologizing for our faith? Are we sorry that this is what we believe and I've got to explain it to you, but I really don't want to? No. Um, apologetics is a word that comes from a Greek word, um, and it's actually a word that is used 
in the Bible. Uh, so this is a this is from Acts 26. Okay, we can see this word happening right here. It says, "So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself." And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Made his defense as a single verb, apologetamai. And then uh, let me see if we've got First Peter 3.15. This is where our, the, top, the, the title for our seminar came from today. Peter says to the Christians, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a what? Defense. Apologeo. Okay, or I'm sorry, uh, what is it? Apologia, that's right, the noun form, apologia. Uh, make a dis- uh, defense, p- apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics. So the, the idea of Christian apologetics is not apologizing, it's defending. It's apologia, or apologetamine is from a, a word that has to do with speaking. And so apologetics is Christians making reasonable, logical, informed defenses of the Christian faith. So, so what is Peter saying? These are very important verses. These are, these are verses that you should uh, meditate on. Okay? And I love that it starts with, in your hearts. Okay? You have a right attitude in your hearts. Let me get that right. There we go. Close enough. In your hearts, honor Christ. Okay? So you need to have Christ set apart in your heart as Lord. But then what does he say? Be prepared to make a defense. Be prepared to give an answer. Be prepared to make a reasonable response to who? Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, that always has stood out to me. That means that you are living in such a way where people are like, why are you so hopeful? What's, what's going on with you? Okay, but there's a defensive, a, a, a readiness to give a, re- a reason. And then what does he say? Do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, so that is... Also, part of our endeavor as we are in this seminar, we are trying to grow in that preparedness to make a defense. But we don't want to be jerks, right? We want to be gentle. We want to be respectful. We want to be hopeful. And we want to have good answers to why we believe what we believe. So, why do we do apologetics? Okay, why are we going to study apologetics? Or more importantly, why have Christians always done apologetics? Because even as you see right there from the New Testament, that is something that Peter is saying. You, you Christian, in the first century, the very birth of the church, you need to be ready to engage in apologetics. You need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And as you study church history, you will see that is one of the main things that the church has always done, is has made these well-articulated, reasonable defenses for the Christian faith. So why do we do that? Well, I want to start out with giving us four functions of apologetics. Okay, these are four things that apologetics accomplishes. Okay, and I am stealing this directly from a professor of mine named Timothy Paul Jones. Okay, so actually a lot of this is, you couldn't really separate out what's me and what's Dr. Jones in this. So if anything's good, just assume it's Timothy Paul Jones. Okay, um, but these, these especially are verbatim from Dr. Timothy Paul Jones at Southern Seminary. So the four function of, functions of apologetics. Number one, Apologetics is the defense of Christian practices for the purpose of preserving the proclamation of the Christian gospel. The defense of Christian practices for the purpose of preserving the proclamation of the Christian gospel. What that presumes is a world that is hostile to the Christian gospel and a world that would want the Christian gospel not even to be proclaimed. Okay, and this happened from the very beginning. We are even in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians as a church on Sunday mornings. Paul is giving defenses for his right to proclaim the gospel as an apostle. 
And then you would even see as you study in the early church that there were people, opponents of Christianity, that were saying that Christianity was so invalid that it did not even deserve a place in the public sphere to be, to be spoken. And so they would argue from an intellectual standpoint and say, you know what, these guys are just a bunch of bumbling idiots. They have no right, don't even listen to what they're saying. And so Christians would step up and make a defense for, hey, you may disagree, but this is why this is at least a valid opinion. This is just as valid as any of the other philosophies swirling around in the Greco-Roman world. So one such apologist was uh, a saint named Origen, okay? And he wrote a book against an opponent of Christianity named Celsus. So he wrote a very important book called Against Celsus. But then you can read other books by other early Christians apologists. So we're talking like the second, third, fourth century where they were engaging with charges against Christianity that just tried to invalidate it outright. Interestingly, three of the most common charges in the early period of the church that were leveled against Christians. Okay, so these are the things that Christians were having to justify and defend themselves against were these three charges. First, that they were atheists. So people were often saying that Christians were atheists. Well, you say, how is that possible? Because it's a religion that believes in God. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, if you didn't believe in all the gods then you were an atheist. And so the Christians had to articulate why that actually wasn't true, that they, that they did believe in God, but that their definition of God was the right definition of God. The second thing that Christians were often accused of in public was of incest. Why would that be? Because we call each other brother and sister. We call each other brother and sister, and we view ourselves as a family, and that that's, was unique, okay? In the Greco-Roman world, you wouldn't consider people that weren't your family your family, but the Christians did. And so we would, so I am married to my sister, and say, oh, he's incestuous. No, here's what we mean by that. We're all this new family in Christ. And then lastly, that we were uh, charged with being cannibals. Why? Be- this is my body, this is my blood, take this in remembrance of me. And so the Christians would meet together in secret, and they would, they used, actually used to say that we would bake a baby into the, into the bread that we would split, and, uh, and then we would eat a baby and the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So these were, some of those were very disingenuous attempts to just defame this other religion, but some of that was legitimate, and so Christians were having to step up and giving a defense against those charges. The same is true for us today, okay? People aren't accusing us of uh, cannibalism, thank God, but they're accusing us of bigotry, right? They're accusing us of hatred. They're accusing us, you know, it used to be that Christianity was just one more valid opinion in the buffet of opinions swirling around in America, but now Christianity is evil. Now Christianity is dangerous. Now Christianity is likened to child abuse, okay? And so we have to be prepared to give a defense in the public sphere of why that's not true, okay? I can see that we disagree, but this invalidating that you're doing is not, is not accurate. So that was function number one, to preserve the proclamation of the Christian, Christian gospel. Function number two of apologetics is the defense of Christian truth for the purpose of calling unbelievers to faith in Jesus. Now, I would imagine this might be the reason that many of you came today, is to learn apologetics for the sake of calling unbelievers to faith in Jesus. So this is apologetics as it's connected to our evangelism. Okay, I think in a lot of ways that's what First Peter is talking about. Be prepared to give it events to those that ask about the hope that is in you. That's speaking to people that don't share that same hope. And uh, this, is, this is important, this is good, this is right for us to grow in apologetics for the sake of evangelism. But I want to say at the outset, and I'm going to repeat this several times as we go through this, apologetics is not what accomplishes evangelism, okay? Apologetics is not what saves people. So if you're coming and you're thinking, man, you know, my, 
my coworker or my daughter, they're, uh, they're not a believer and they've got all these, these questions and if I could just have the right answers to those questions then they would be convinced into the kingdom of God. That's not how it works, okay? We're gonna talk about that. So as I like to think about this function of apologetics, the way that I like to think about it, because yes, we are engaging with non-believers with reasoned defenses for the validity of the Christian faith and I think the benefit of that, of having good arguments, good answers, is it just keeps the conversation going. Okay, a lot of times people raise objections in a way that is meant to stop that evangelistic conversation. It's meant to stop the relationship that you are growing with them and, and just kind of shut the conversation down. You know, they, they've raised some issue that you can't get over, and so you just don't talk about it anymore. But if we have right answers, then what are we doing? We're, we're answering their questions, they're raising up more questions, and the conversation just gets longer and longer. And in that conversation, we're sharing the gospel with them. And it is God, by his spirit, we're going to talk about this in just a few moments, it's God's by his spirit that works through his word to save people. And the more opportunities we have to share his word, the more seeds there are, the more, the more God can work, okay? But God works according to his will, not according to our apologetics, right? But we do want to keep that conversation going. Function number three, the defense of the Christian doctrine to safeguard the church from heresy. Okay, so this is another reason that it's important for Christians to study these defenses of the Christian faith. This is that we can make sure we're not believing wrong things about the Christian faith. Okay, First John, the book of First John is a great example of this. Um, many people think that the book of First John was written to guard against a heresy called docetism. And so he is giving defenses, I and mean, we're not going to get into docetism, but, but he's giving defenses for why that's wrong. And, and so he is shoring up the boundaries of what the Orthodox Christian faith is through some sort of apologetics argument. So that's number three. We won't be doing much of that today. Lastly, number four, the apologetics is a rational articulation of Christian truth for the purpose of strengthening the faith of those who already believe. Okay, so that's another reason we study apologetics is it makes our own faith stronger. And that's of great benefit to us. It keeps us from being shaken. It keeps us from losing confidence in our hope. Um, one of my friends said that apologetics is like a greasy taco for a non-believer. Okay, you're throwing out these arguments that unsettle them just a little bit. It's like, you know, I haven't thought about that. It kind of shakes my understanding a little bit. So apologetics is a greasy taco for the non-believer, and it's an antacid for the believer. Okay, so, so it makes us uh, more comfortable. It makes us more confident in our faith. It, it quiets our doubts. And this is a good thing. And, you know, personally, we're gonna, we'll talk about this later. When I doubt uh, the faith, which I do, and, and I think there's an element to where that's just part of the struggle is to doubt. And when I doubt, I often return to apologetic arguments for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so I will speak apologetics to myself to strengthen my faith. Yeah. Number four, the rational articulation of Christian truth for the purpose of strengthening the faith of those who already believe. So those are the four functions of apologetics, that we are studying apologetics to accomplish those four things. Now from here on out, let me give you kind of an overview of where we're going to be going, okay? Because we're going to break this up into three lessons. I'm going to try and keep them short so that we can ask questions. So if you have questions, just, uh, I mean, feel free to interrupt me like Amy just did. That's totally fine. Um, but if you want to, you can just write down your question, and we'll have time at the end to, uh, to ask those. But we're going to have three lessons, and I want to kind of cover what are, broadly speaking, three different um, branches or approaches to apologetics. And I'm covering all three of those. A lot of times people want to, like, pit one approach or one branch against the other. I don't think so. I want to think about this all together. So here's a little diagram that we'll be using 
for the day. So we're going to start with a foundation. So this is going to be what we're going to cover right now in this time. And this is called, I'm going to write it out, presuppositionalism. That's a really long word. Just had enough room. Perfect. Presuppositionalism. So that's going to be our foundation if we're building a building. Okay? Presuppositionalism. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put up some walls in the second lesson. Okay? And these walls we're going to call classical apologetics. Okay? Classical apologetics is proofs for the existence of God. Okay? So usually when someone thinks of apologetics, this is something that they're thinking of. And then we're going to put the roof on. Okay? And the roof we're going to call evidentialism. So that's going to be our third lesson. And evidentialism is where we move from these proofs for the existence of God in the abstract to uh, the Christian God being the true God. So evidence is for the Christian God. So we're going to start with this foundation, but we're going to build our way up. And you didn't know we were building a church, but there it is. We're building a church. Uh, so that is where we are, where we are going. So first, let's talk about presuppositionalism. Did everybody, do I need to write that again or did everybody get it down? It's a, it's a big word. Presuppositionalism. Um, let me write it again. Presuppositional. Did I spell that right? Suppositionalism. So you can see in this word, if you kind of break it down, this is what uh, I always have to do is just break down words and make it make more sense. So right in the middle of this word is the word it looks like suppose. And that's kind of at the heart of presuppositionalism. Um, presuppositionalism is, a, is often called philosophical apologetics. There's a man named Cornelius Van Til, um, if you're interested. He's the kind of the guy, he's pretty dense, but he's the guy that really pioneered this um, in, in our contemporary time. Cornelius Van Til. So I wrote Van Til right up there. Um, so the idea of presuppositionalism is built on the framework that everyone has a worldview. Have you heard about worldview? Um, we've talked about this in our church quite a bit. It's very important. So what all a worldview is, is every single person has an interpretive lens in their own mind through which they are filtering and, and making sense of everything that they're perceiving in the world. It's how they understand the world that they are living in. And a worldview is built on presuppositions, okay? So that's where we get the name presuppositionalism. A worldview is built on things that you suppose or you assume to be true pre, at the outset, okay? So let me give you an example. If I say Chase is teaching a seminar, I'm presupposing several things when I'm making that statement of fact, okay? I'm presupposing that Chase exists. I am presupposing that Chase can talk, I'm presupposing that Chase has something good to say in a seminar. Okay, I hope that that's true. But I am not stating those presuppositions when I'm stating that statement of fact. I'm assuming those things, and you're assuming those things. Okay, We are always assuming certain things are true, and we don't articulate them every time we're, we're making factual statements or we're making factual um, ideas in our own mind, okay? We are just assuming those things are true. Could you imagine how much more clunky it would be if every time we had to talk, we had to state all of our presuppositions, okay? Uh, wife, assuming that you exist and that we are, in fact, married, I am going to 
drive, assuming there is such a thing as a car, to the grocery store, which I'm presuming still exists. And, okay, we, we don't do that. Those things are just running kind of like an operating system in our background, okay? And, and if we had to do that every time, we would lose our minds. At the same time, if we didn't have presuppositions, we would also lose our minds, okay? Everyone has presuppositions. And the scary thing is, it's kind of like a fish swimming in water. You've heard the joke about the, the two young fish that are swimming in the water, and then the old fish swims by, and he says, good morning, boys. The water's fine, isn't it? And then they keep on swimming, and the two little fish are like, what's water? Okay? They live in it. They're so, they're so in it that they don't realize that it's happening. Most people have presuppositions in their worldview that they just operate by. They have no idea that it's there. Okay? Presuppositionalism, as a branch of apologetics, is saying we are trying to engage with those presuppositions that most oftentimes people presume, okay, and that they are unaware of. So presuppositionalism, in a way, is engaging with uh, the most important questions that people can ask, and people all have answers to these questions. So is there a God? Most people have not taken time to formally articulate that. They just assume yes or no, there is a God. Is there such a thing as right or wrong? Morality is just presumed uh, by, by people. Where did everything come from? What is the purpose of life? What is wrong with the world? And what will it take to fix it? Where is everything going? What is the point of this, this whole existence? Where is this driving to? Everybody has answers to these questions, but they may not have articulated them. But the point that I'm trying to make is, when it comes to worldview and when it comes to these presuppositions, there's really only two. There's the Christian worldview, and then there's every other worldview. And it's wrong. Okay? So presuppositionalism begins with, with that idea that the only correct presuppositions to have are the ones that have been articulated to us in the scriptures. Okay? And that makes sense because we believe that the universe was made by God. Okay? And then God told us what the world is actually like in the scriptures. And so any worldview or any presupposition that doesn't line up with the scriptures is necessarily wrong because it's disagreeing with the person that made it. Okay, somebody used the, the illustration of, a, of an inventor that made a great computer that he gave to uh, a company that was using the computer. Well, the computer broke, and so they called the inventor to come and fix it. And he, and he said, you're using it wrong. Here's the instruction manual. I made this. I know how this works. This is, you have to op operate this according to the instruction manual or else you are, you're going to break it. Okay? The Christian worldview is the right worldview because God is the one that made it and we are trying as hard as we can to align our understanding of creation with God's definition of creation. Okay? So this is, let me just say this. Okay? Um, we're right. We're right. Okay? Uh, I, I was doing an apologetics training with a, um, I worked for a college ministry and we were sending out a bunch of college missionaries to uh, all over the world. And so I was doing an apologetics training and we covered a lot of this stuff, but a lot of them came up to me afterwards and that was the thing that, that was most important to them. These are young people, very, very bright, very gifted Christians, but no one had ever just told them, hey, you're right and everyone else is wrong. And that's not to be arrogant, okay? That's not to say like we're better. I'm not, right is not better in this case. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd all be wrong. Okay, but God has given us his word and shown us what is right. But there's a reason that Psalm 14 begins with, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's foolish. And so why do I bring that up? Why is that important? Because in many ways, when we are especially engaging in apologetics and evangelistic sense, what happens is we're going to be dealing with people that are raising objections very confidently. 
And if you are uh, not well-trained, okay, if you have not thought about these things, and somebody else seems to be very confident in their assertion that the Bible is full of contradictions, what happens? Their confidence overwhelms us, and we will, we will not know how to answer that question, okay? Because they seem to have knowledge that we don't have, and so it, it makes us shrink our confidence. And in a lot of ways, apologetics and evangelism is just engaging in dueling confidences. And so, just at the outset, we are right. And if someone seems really confident against the Christian faith, they're confidently wrong. Okay? And so you don't need to be overwhelmed. You don't need to be scared by that. You don't need to put, be put off by that. Okay? You can say, I don't have an answer to that question, but I know there is an answer to that question. Let me take a week I'm going to go talk to my pastor. I'm going to go do some research. I'm going to find some answers. And then let's get coffee and let's keep talking about that. Okay? Because I'm confident that I can answer that objection. I've never heard that before, but I'm confident that I can. And you should be confident. Okay? Okay? So if you don't remember anything else, remember that. We're right. But then that's also a charge, right? That's why Peter says, be prepared. What is our confidence? Grow in that confidence. Okay? It's, it's one thing to know that we can be confident, but we do have to grow in our confidence. Okay. So... Presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics, like I said, is just engaging in conversation at that level of the things that are assumed to be true. And as I've thought about how we, uh, we engage in those presuppositions, I think we're really doing two, one of two things. Okay, We're talking to somebody. We are either trying to expose in their own mind that a presupposition that they have is faulty. Okay, they assume that something is true that's, that's not actually in accordance with the way the world works. It's not in accordance with reality. And then at which point we are making a positive argument for why the Christian worldview is, is correct. Okay, and that the Christian presuppositions are correct. And that's actually going to be more what we're talking about in the second lesson. Okay, but we're asking questions to try and help people see that like, their, their lack of belief in God is foolishness. Okay, and that it is actually more rational to believe that God does exist. So that's one level. But the other side, and this is really interesting, and this is actually at the heart of when we're talking about presuppositional apologetics. This is, this is what like, Cornelius Van Til was getting at, and I think this is really cool. Is we are trying to help that person understand that the presuppositions that they hold are actually Christian. So they may not be a Christian, but their presuppositions, the worldview and the way that they're operating— is Christian. And so there is an incoherence. When they say that they're not Christian, at some point, they are being incoherent or they are being inconsistent because they are filling in the gaps in their worldview with the Christian worldview. Okay? Um, let's look at, this is Romans 1. Uh, where's my piano? Romans 1. This is Romans 1, verses 18 to 22. This is, this is, where a lot of this comes out. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, you see that? Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to everyone is what Paul is saying, because God has shown it to him for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became 
fools. These are very important verses. Theologically, these are very important verses for apologetics. What is that saying? Every single person knows God exists. And at some level, every single person believes God exists. Why? Paul says the fact that God exists is self-evident in the creation. That every person born has a sense of God. And they look and they see this, this divine power that is displayed in the creation. They say there must be a God. And what does he say that they do in these early verses? They suppress the truth. They actively press that truth down and they convince themselves that there is no God. But everybody's default setting is to believe in God. And then they suppress that truth, they push it down, and they give themselves different arguments for why that's not true. But that suppression of the truth is inconsistent. So operating at the very base of every single person is an understanding that God exists. That's at the heart of presuppositionalism. And so what we are trying to do is to just help someone see that the way that they're operating is actually because God exists and they know that God exists. Greatest example of this, I think, is morality and moral relativism. Have you ever met a moral relativist? You know what that is? Somebody that says good and bad are relative, that there's not actually good or bad. Uh, It's just um, kind of socially conditioned. There's not a lot of moral relativists, like true moral relativists, thank God. Most of them seem to be concentrated on college campuses, okay? Um, which Which is where I did a lot of my a lot of my ministry before coming here. So moral relativists will say there's really no such thing as good or evil, and if you, and you know, in your um, kind of puritanical Western sense want to act like there's certain social mores and things like that, that's fine. But I'm actually, I know that this is all just a social construct and there's no good or evil. What happens when you punch them in the face? They become moral pretty quickly, don't they? Okay. Um, Or as C.S. Lewis says, a moral relativist is a moral relativist until you break a promise to them. And then what do they start doing? They start appealing to morality. They start saying, you can't do that. You shouldn't have done that. Based on what? Based on what? On what grounds are you basing this idea of morality? And this extends beyond just a true moral relativist, okay? Everybody. This is uh, actually an argument that C.S. Lewis used in a book called Mere Christianity. Great book I'd recommend to you. Um, He makes this argument that because everybody has a moral law that they appeal to and assume that everyone shares, that's actually a proof for the existence of a moral God, okay? But everybody is operating according to this moral understanding. And so when they are making appeals to morality from a worldview that does not allow for morality, do you get what I'm saying? So say you're a secular atheist, Okay, and you just believe that we are all the product of, uh, what was it, an accidental collocation of atoms, is what Bertrand Russell said. That we are just all accidents that have arrived here by chance in survival of the fittest and things like that. Okay, um, here we are, and yet you can't punch me in the face. Says who? Says what? Wouldn't that actually be survival of the fittest if I'm stronger than you? I can punch you in the face all I want. But no, you're operating from a place where that would be wrong. Based on what? And so we are just saying, look, you are basing your understanding on morality because God is moral and God exists. You are being inconsistent. God is real. And that's kind of at the, that's, that's what presuppositional apologetics is, okay? That is what we are trying to do is engage in, in that process. 
let me give you just an, just an example of this on that same tack. Uh, when I was doing uh, college ministry, I was talking to a young man that was more relativist, and he was doing his darndest to be consistent in that. So props to him. He was trying to be consistent. We were having the conversation, and he was saying, no, there's no such thing as good or bad. There's no Our culture in the United States uh, assumed that it was right at one point to own black people. Is that, did that mean that it was right? This was a, a white guy. Does that mean that it was right? Because everybody in our society assumed that it was okay to own black people, that that was right. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, there are two African-American gentlemen sitting in the lobby. Would you like to go tell them that? And he said, no. <laughs> he knew. He knew that that was inconsistent. He knew that that was wrong. And I, and I couldn't get him. You know, I tried everything I could to kind of pin him to the wall. And I couldn't get him to do it. But he had to go home knowing he said that. Right? And that's all we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do in apologetics. We're trying to, somebody called it putting a pebble in somebody's shoe. That dude had to go home and know that he told me that to my face. And I would think that that greasy taco effect had to be taking, taking some work in that. Okay? But that's presuppositionalism. We are just trying to appeal to those inconsistencies. Right? Other ways that, um, like I said, I, even in that conversation, did you hear? I'm just asking questions. This is how you do apologetics, really, is you're just asking a lot of questions. You know what your argument you're trying to make, but it's better to get, keep them talking. Like I said, you're keeping the conversation going. So here are some other questions that I have found successful trying to engage at this presuppositional level. Where did this all come from? Okay, or another way that you can say that. Why is there something instead of nothing? Where did the universe come from? Like I said, what's wrong with the world? Everybody has an answer to what's wrong with the world. Maybe it's class stratification. Maybe it's a lack of education. Maybe it's, you know, racism, on and on. How do we fix it? How do we fix what's wrong with the world? Is it with more education, with more money? Um, what is the meaning or purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? That's an interesting one. Everybody, is, everybody has some purpose in mind with the way that they're living. Um, and I have, I have found a lot of success, especially with young people. They are pursuing some objective in life. They don't know why. They don't know what they, they haven't actually articulated the, the purpose of life. I remember talking to a guy that was studying business. So why are you studying business? Uh, I guess to make a lot of money. Why are you trying to make a lot of money? Because well, I guess I thought that that was the point of things. And I said, is it the point of things? Is that a very good point of things? And he goes, no. And then literally, this is the only, this is the only time this has ever happened to me, so don't get excited. But he said, what should I do? I said, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. Asking, asking, yeah, uh, asking that question, what is the purpose? Okay, I was getting at that question. What is the purpose? What is the thing that drives you? What do you think is really important? He had just never thought about it. And it took a 30-second conversation for him to realize that he was way off. So we're just asking questions. What is human nature? Okay, um, aspects of human nature. So why do we think that every human has dignity? Why do we think it would be wrong to hurt someone? Okay, everybody thinks that it's wrong to hurt someone. But most people don't think that... God, that people are made in the image of God. So why do you think it's wrong? Why should we treat other people with value and dignity? Um, also with human nature, are we more good than bad? Or are we more bad than good? That's a good question. Or are we born neutral? Are we like a blank slate? And then it's your conditioning that, that brings that up. Um, what's the nature of truth? What's the source of truth? How do we know what's true? Is there such a thing as truth? And how will this all end? 
how will this all end? Are we just, is the universe destined to burn out when the second law of thermodynamics takes hold and what, you know, the heat death of all creation and that's it? You know, the sun's going to explode and we're all going to die and eat, drink, be merry. Okay, where is this all going? And again, like I said, ask questions, okay? You ask that first question and then you just keep on asking questions, okay? Where, where is this all going? Explain that to me. How did you come to that conclusion? How does that affect your everyday life? Okay, that's what we're, we're trying to do is just keep this converga- conversation going. And that's the start of a good friendship, isn't it? If you're having a conversation like that with somebody, you're going to learn a lot about them. They're going to learn a lot about you. Hopefully, you'll have opportunities to say, you know, I would answer that question differently. But do you see also how that's gentle and respectful? You're not preaching to them. You're discussing with them. You're thinking with them. You're reasoning together with them. So um, that is presuppositional apologetics. One other thing that I want to um, bring up just right now, because they're usually tied together, is called, oh, that's not the one I want. Hold on. Reformed epistemology. Sorry. Is it with an E or an I? Epistem, I wrote it down. It's, a, it's an E. I did that wrong. This is an E. Epistemology. Yeah, I'm giving you the big words. That's why I'm writing them down. Reformed epistemology. Epistemology is the philosophical subject of how we know things. How, how do we know um, what's true? How do we know? Uh, how do we perceive things? Okay, so it has to do with kind of knowledge and our understanding. Reformed Reformed has to do with Reformed theology, okay? So theology that's coming out of the Reformation. Um, in this case, particularly from the, the thought of John Calvin, okay? So Reformed epistemology. Uh, this was the kind of the champion of this was a man named Alvin Plantinga. Um, Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga, um, who is uh, just a remarkable man and reformed epistemology is again coming out of those verses in romans 1 so let me show you these verses in romans 1 again okay this is romans 1 20, 21 although they knew god so remember what we established in romans 1 that everybody knows who god is although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Okay, so that last part, their futility in their thinking and the darkness of their heart. So John Calvin um, was the first to articulate this idea of what he called sensus divinitatis, I think is what it is. Tatis or tatus? Tus, it's a U. Sensus divinitatis, I'm not very good at Latin. Um, The sense of the divine. Sensus divinitatis. What Calvin said is that everybody had kind of like an organ for perceiving that God exists. In the same way that we have eyes that perceive color and light and dark, we had some other part of our being that perceived God and that we all had a sense of God. But then we suppressed that truth and became futile in our thinking. And so this is what we call the noetic effects of the fall. Noetic means it has to do with our intelligence. It's a Greek word that has to do with intelligence. So we talk about the noetic effects of the fall. It means that when Adam sinned, all of mankind's thinking was broken. 
And so while we have a sense of the divine and while we are able to reason rationally, there is something about our intelligence that is broken. And so we do not reason correctly. I don't think anybody, if they've actively looked at their own life, would say, yeah, in every case I act, act as a perfectly rational animal, right? And I just make only reasonable choices. There are very often times where I am unreasonable, okay? And that is the noetic effect of the fall. And so what Reformed epistemology is basically saying, going back to these verses, is that everyone is futile in their thinking. Everyone is darkened. Do you see Paul uses that word darkened in their minds? This is the state of everyone before they are converted and become a Christian. They are darkened. They do not know God. They do not believe in God. Then they do not, because they do not believe in God, cannot rightly interpret the world as it is. And that's why we believe, thank God, in a verse like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So everyone apart from God's activity is darkened in our thinking. And God is the one that shines light into our hearts. Okay? Did you hear apologetics at any point in that process? We were darkened in our thinking. We had suppressed the truth and God shined the light in our hearts. No. So again, that's why I said nobody is reasoned into the kingdom of God. It's not just a matter of thinking the right thoughts because we can't think the right thoughts apart from God enlightening our hearts. That is reformed epistemology. That until God sovereignly acts according to his predestined will upon those whom he has elected for salvation, we cannot think correctly about the world. Okay? And so that point I bring up is important to keep in mind as we are engaging in evangelism. It's, this is just, be, this very quickly crosses into the realm of mis- mystery. Okay? I don't get how this works. God has told me to go and share the gospel. I know that that's true. God has revealed his will to me that I'm supposed to go out and I'm trying to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. God has simultaneously told me that it's ultimately he and he alone who persuades people of the truth of the gospel. And so I'm just going out and my job is to just say the stuff. My job is to just try and keep the conversation going. My job is to just try and proclaim the word of God in as many ways as I can. But I trust that I'm not going to, it's not going to be me that's convincing someone that this is true. It's going to be God working through his spirit and his word to enlighten the hearts of someone. Um, what does this have to do with apologetics? Well, one, that's just important for us to keep in mind as we're engaging in evangelism. I would recommend a book to you. This has been one of the most influential books on me in my whole life. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. Okay, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it just deals with that seeming paradox. How is God sovereign over salvation? How has God predestined some before the foundation of the world to be saved, and yet we are supposed to go out and proclaim the gospel to everybody. How do you do that? We're not going to get into that today. So go read that book. It's really little, well-written. I think it's in the bookstore. Um, But I bring that up now because there are some people who would actually argue that because a non-believer's reason is fallen, there is no point in engaging with reasonable arguments for the Christian faith. And I think that that's wrong. I agree with... The theology there, I do agree that people's reason has fallen and so that we are dependent on God acting by 
his Holy Spirit. But I, I think as you read the Bible and we see what the apostles were doing, the apostles had no problem. You know, where do we get the idea of predestination from? It's not John Calvin. It's the apostle Paul, right? You get that? Okay. Paul is the one that talks about predestination. And Paul at the same time says that it is his responsibility to go out and preach Christ crucified to everybody. Okay, so, so somehow there's just that, that nature to that. We see Paul engaging in defenses of the Christian faith. Um, I think that argument also fails to appreciate that even though our minds are fallen, they're not entirely fallen. And so when I talk about the noetic effects of the fall, we are not as bad as we could be. Right? Like, look at the world. If we were really as bad as we could be, the place would be a lot worse than it is. So there is still some spark. There is still some of that sensus divinitatis, and there is still some appeals to reason that can be made. Truthfulness is apparent. We just have to work harder at it. Okay, and ultimately we need God's, God's grace. Um, but then, like I said, that the whole point of apologetics is not because we're trying to convince fallen people through just our sound arguments that Jesus is Lord. Okay, we're just trying to keep the conversation going. So I think it is right for us to engage in, um, in that process. But, but some people don't. Maybe somebody in here doesn't. I had a brother come up to me one time because I would do apologetics training in our college ministry, and he told me to stop because somebody with a fallen mind is not going to understand the cosmological argument for the existence of God. You just need to tell them that they're sinners and that Jesus died for them. I don't disagree, but I think there's more to do. And, and that's why I'm talking about this as, as multiple, multiple parts. So... Let me see if there's anything else worth saying before we wrapped up. Yeah. Um, so with this, like I said, we've covered presuppositionalism. We've covered that reformed epistemology. I think that that's better to have sort of a, a foundation for us that we're building on. So let me give you one more example of this where, where this was really apparent to me. And then we'll wrap up and we can ask questions. I was just watching a debate um, between a Christian and an atheist. And the topic of the debate was... Something like, is Christianity evil? Okay, so that was the topic of their debate. And people have said this, okay? Like I, like I said, that people today are starting to say, this is not just one more valid opinion, it's actually wrong and evil, and you guys should shut up. So that was the topic of the debate. Is Christianity evil? And the Christian was, was a guy that I have a lot of respect for, but he's really committed to this kind of presuppositional apologetics. And so he stood up and he said, hey, you atheist, the fact that you are using the term evil and presuming that there is such a thing as good or evil means that you're being inconsistent and you are borrowing from the Christian tradition and using categories that come from God and God alone. Therefore, you actually believe that God exists and you have suppressed that truth and are subject to his wrath and you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then he sat down. You know, debate over, QED, I did it. And that was great, okay? That was, that was really good. Here's the thing, the debate was three hours long. And what did the atheists do? The atheist got up and he said, Christianity is still evil. And here are my positive arguments for why Christianity is evil. So what he did was a great example of presuppositional apologetics, but there is more to do in that discussion, isn't there? And he did, and he got up and he engaged with the actual question. But we can't just, we can't just stop at that. But you can see where that, that is very effective, isn't it? So we're going to talk about what we, what we build on that foundation from presuppositional apologetics. But that is the end of our first lesson. So let me open it up to questions.
and then we'll take a break. Any questions coming out of that? No? Nothing? Nobody's got thoughts? Maybe after Amy's got a thought. Can I send what out? Yeah. Uh-huh. It was James White. Um, so just, just Google James White, presuppositional apologetics. It, it honestly wasn't like the content of the debate after that point wasn't super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I didn't find the atheist guy to be particularly convincing. He just kind of got angry. But you could but it would be good to watch him do. It. Yeah, it was it was a masterful use of presuppositional apologetics for sure. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. So we'll actually get to that a little bit in the in the second lecture because that's where we are establishing the positive existence of God, and we will see that it's because uh, if God exists, then He is our authority, right? If God made everything, that means He made us, and that means we are um, we are answerable to Him. Yeah. So it 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 is that. Uh, reality that I think a lot of people are actually rebelling against. I mean, that was in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? That Adam was in a position of submission to God and in obedience to God. But what was the temptation? No, you can be like God yourself. And you can abrogate the authority that God has onto yourself and you can be your own authority. So in one way, that's just the sin that everybody's committing, is that we do not like the idea of an outside authority dictating to us what uh, we're supposed to do. But again, to use that, I like to that computer analogy. If I just walked up to a computer and I said, who cares what the inventor says? I'm going to do this thing the way that I want. We're going to break it. And so in some ways, that's a definition of sin. I'm not saying it's the only definition of sin. But if you look at the brokenness in the world, part of that is just, man, we're screwing up the machine, right? We're not going according to the inventor. Sure. Yep, I do. Um, there's, you know, a word like hardness is used, okay? So yeah, I do think that people will harden themselves. And and this gets more into that theology um, that, that I'm really not trying to go off into the weeds on this, but the Puritans had a saying that the same sun that melts the ice hardens clay. And so, and the sun being is the revelation of God through through his spoken word, through his preached word. So some people will actually hear us speaking the word of God. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? That it's foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so that kind of has to do with that secret will of God having already determined who is and who isn't. But yes, somebody will respond to the proclaimed word of God and their heart will get harder and their mind will get will get darker. Um, and then that's why you see, if you look in Romans 1, um, see if I can find it. Yeah, we, we just cut it off. But it, it goes on to say that, therefore, God has handed them over to their 
he's, he's, okay, you want to be your own authority? Be your own authority, and it's not going to go well for you. And that's what theologians call passive wrath, that God allows us to. It's kind of like when, you know, you've got an older uh, son or daughter, and they just are hell-bent, literally, on making the wrong decision. As a parent, you just say, okay, go do that. It's not going to work. It's not going to go well for you. And God, in his grace, sometimes uses that to save people, right? Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, that's my own testimony, that I tried me in my own authority, and then I broke everything, right? And that softened me. But other people are going to respond to that. And that gets into a lot of that theology of soteriology, you know, how are we saved, things like that. But, yeah. Somebody else have a, yeah? Yeah, and let me just say, this this is part of what I want. So if you've got, like, specific situations, that helps all of us to hear to hear that. Okay, so, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's so you're doing presuppositionalism. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah. So, so, and we will talk about a little bit later um, the role of scripture as the source of truth and as a historical document and things like that. That is a, another kind of argument to make. But yeah, you can say, okay, if you're not living according to this book, what are you living according to? How how do you have the audacity to say that things are right or wrong? What are you basing that? off of and is what you're basing it off of actually worth basing it off of or are you actually basing it off of what this book says you just don't want to recognize that that book's right things like that yeah so that would be a great one yeah (laughs) i would not say presuppositionalism then i would (laughs) wow Yeah, and you know, and that just makes me think of, um, yeah, yeah. So I would suggest the first few chapters of Mere Christianity, if you've never read that. That's kind of the whole, like, Lewis doesn't really use many other, he kind of does actually, but he's really just basing it off of the moral argument for the existence of God. And he had a great line in there that he said, um, everybody appeals to some outside standard of right or wrong. And he makes the point that every culture has actually kind of agreed more or less, on what right or wrong is. There's some, there's some differences, but really, if you look at, you know, even across history, like, if you look at what Roman culture said was right or wrong, and then you look at what our culture, you look at what, you know, African culture says is right or wrong, you look at any different culture, that there's an agreement there. Um, and so he says, that's a proof that we're all appealing to some outside standard, i.e. God, right? So everybody has that standard that they appeal to, and also everybody knows that they haven't kept it. And he says the greatest proof of that is anytime you do something wrong, you try to defend yourself or justify was it, why it wasn't wrong. Um, and so he just kind of stops and he says, really, you just have to look at the human heart as the best evidence for the existence of God because we know that we've broken some rules. And where does that come from? It comes from God, which sounds like he might be thinking. All right, one more question. Okay. lives by it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, I think I think that's I think moral relativism is actually the most obviously inconsistent position that somebody could have. And there's ways where you can fill that out to where um, to where it isn't, but you're having to do a lot of gymnastics, right? So maybe he's he's saying uh, I have been enculturated with a sense of right and wrong, and we'll take a pragmatic approach and say it's actually best for us if we act like there is a right or wrong, but there actually isn't a right or wrong. Um, or, you know, th there's sort of a Darwinian argument for the existence of morality. Like, we have just evolved with a strong sense of right or wrong, which preserves our social cohesion as a species. Um, that, yeah. So I would just investigate those things, and then from there you're kind of splitting off into other presuppositions, aren't you? Right? Like, okay, if you're a Darwinian, there's on and on, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Or if you know, this is all just socially conditioned, then there is that argument, like I said, well, what if our whole culture decides that something is suddenly right that we used to call wrong for a long time, okay? That would mean that morality is shifting, and are you okay with that, you know? Um, and, and you can look at, um, especially in the modern era, there are certain examples of cultures and governments that have kind of taken that tack. You know, we are the ones that define what right or wrong is, and they ended up murdering lots of people, right? So you can kind of go there. So again, you're just you're just getting them to talk. That's uh, that's kind of the heart of presuppositional apologetics, I think, is you're trying to get them to talk, and as they're talking, they kind of realize what they're saying is crazy, right? And, and so there's another line of logic called um, argumentum ad absurdum, and so you're trying to take the argument to the absurd point that it, you know, so it sounds reasonable when you kind of say it in these limited measures, but if you keep on taking that to its logical conclusion, it gets nuts. And you want somebody to admit that, yeah, you're, if you're consistent, you're nuts, you know, um, that you, you think it's okay to own black people, right? Like, that's, that's the kind of argumentation that you're giving. Yeah, and that he's... The, yeah, right, yeah, you know, and that's, that's that, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's... Um, it doesn't, it doesn't work as well as it sounds like it will. But, yeah, if somebody is uh, a moral relativist, which is also to say that they're kind of an epistemological relativist, so truth is relative. Um, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Well, you just said that like it was true, right? So you just, you're breaking your own system and making that statement. You're making a truth claim that's relative, you know? So, so y we can't exist in relativity. We don't actually exist in relativity. Yeah. Okay. Great questions. We'll have time for more questions. Let's take a five-minute break. There's some snacks out there. The restrooms are that way. Out the door. I don't know what room I'm in. Out the door that way, and we'll jump back in.